This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to this week's Liverpool.com podcast. I am Dan Morgan. I'm joined by Liverpool.com's Oliver Connolly and Mark Wakefield. Gents, hope you're well. Um, Liverpool, after a week in which they've won a Premier League game, um, and you know we were all able to, for once, not be apocalyptic on a Sunday night um, about the concept of the world caving in. Um, we are we are currently in the midst of a week in which Liverpool host Chelsea on Thursday uh, after winning at Sheffield United. And I guess I just want to sort of start by catching the mood a little bit, Ollie, and, and just seeing sort of where, where you're at after that. You know, we've had sort of these false dawns before with West Ham and Tottenham, and it just feels like any win now is something to cling to for a little bit at least. Um, but yeah, just in terms of the mood of, of yourself after this week, how have you, uh, have you been? Yeah, it was a good win. Uh, they played well. I thought the tactical setup was brilliant and they could have won by four, five, six. So of course, you have to caveat everything with that. It, team really stinks. Sheffield United, they are they're oh, really God, bad. Yeah. And they they turned around the centre-back partnership three or four times and could have had something. So that there's one of those where there's, there's really promising signs, this kind of new flexible... Two, three, five, three, five, two. A bit of something different, which is really exciting. Um, the performance of Curtis Jones, exciting. Thiago, excellent. And then you have the the concern still, which is the lack of the press, the the Kabak situation, who's been up and down early on. So to, to me, it's much of the same. It, it does remind me similarly to the West Ham games, where there were so many positive signs going out that West Ham game. Similar stuff, tactical setup, Curtis Jones. Um, and yet there were those concerns that immediately just mm. sprang back to life. So it, it's definitely a wait and see situation um, in this final run. Yeah, it's 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 a, another big a big test on the back of a win mark. This is a, a massive game in, in terms of I almost pitted alongside what happened against Man City in that you sort of get the feeling with Chelsea because of the squad depth, because of the 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 depth of quality they've got that it's one of those where if you're not on it, or even if you have a bad 15 minutes like Liverpool against has against City, the wheel can come off quite dramatically. Yeah, I mean, you know, Chelsea are a completely different animal now, aren't they? With uh, Thomas Tuchel, you know, it, it completely transformed them um, to the team that they were under Frank Lampard. You know, they're much more defensively solid. It's made them hard to beat, hard to concede. They don't concede many chances. You know, they've gone to three at the back with um, uh, Christensen, Rudiger, and um, Aspilicueta. So they're much defensively solid team and you know that's not what you want to hear for a team coming to Anfield where Liverpool are struggling not just to win games but to score goals you know confidence is really low on the home patch and you know the his- the history of the fixture of Liverpool versus Chelsea is obviously on Liverpool's side in recent years but like I say the recent form is just not there at the moment and something's got to spring them back to life we've been saying it for the last few months you know Manchester United at home that's got to get them back you know Man City at home, that's going to get them back. Merseyside Derby, they've all been games that we've been, we've been thinking, you know, this is the perfect time for Liverpool to get back into a, a rhythm, get the momentum back. And it's just not happened. And it, like Ollie said there, you know, it was a good win against Sheffield United, but it is just a wait and see moment at this at this point because while it was a solid win, like like you said, if Sheffield United had put their chances away, that's a different result altogether. You know, yes, it was a welcome clean sheet, but it wasn't a comfortable clean sheet not giving the defence um, in moments of peace because I think there was a header from McBurney um, in the game where it should have been buried easily. Any top quality striker buries that. If that's Olivier Giroud, that's, that's in the back of the net, no question. So it's certainly going to be a tough test to deal with 
Chelsea, with Chelsea defence and their attack, you know, Timo Verge has not been playing as a striker very much, but you know, he'll want to prove a point because like obviously last summer he was linked with Liverpool. Um he'll want to prove a point at Anfield, albeit there's no fans there, but it's certainly going to be a tough ask uh, to deal with this new Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel, that's for sure. What, what is it with new Chelsea managers just basically deciding Marcus Alonso's the way forward, by the way? There's the thing with Tuchel. Every, every manager. Tuchel is a madman. This oh, cannot yeah. be understated in any sense of the word. This man is beyond yeah. football obsessive. You think Pep Guardiola is football obsessive, Thomas Tuchel takes it to the next degree. And he does not believe in your weird definitions of formations and systems and tactics that has no role in his life. He could roll up with nine different formations and he spaces them out eight minutes apart. Yeah. And that's how he runs. So yeah. there's no idea why he's going to do it. And I think that's a, it, it's a it's a scary and interesting proposition because you don't know whether he's going to try and pin up against what Liverpool ran the other night, whether he's going to try and map out something for how Liverpool have traditionally played with a 4-3-3, whether it's playing on the counter-attack or playing more possession-heavy. And it kind of gives you two different angles. Could it be like when Chelsea rolled up last year and Liverpool just ripped them apart because Chelsea is so wide open and they ask N'Golo Candy to say cover the whole middle of the pitch, which... Tuchel has done also in games where he thinks he can get away with it, or do they come and play a bit more sedated and try and hit them on the counter attack? So it's it's probably the most wild, wide open in terms of what it could look like game they've had all season because Lord knows what Tuchel's going to roll up with a plan of. I think he is the archetypal sort of three year manager mm-hmm. in that he he asks for he's so intense he asks for so much he'll he'll drag a substitute off if he isn't doing to the minuscule detail what he's asked him to. That by the end of three years with him, everyone's just like, get this guy away from, from me. He's really doing me head in. He's, uh, he's an intense guy, isn't he? I, I get a little bit uncomfortable seeing him sometimes on screen. <laughs> I'm a little bit like, oh, I wouldn't fancy working for you. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Um, so, yeah, uh, that is not the nature of this particular podcast to talk about Chelsea and to talk about Sheffield United. What we've decided to do, uh, an idea spawned by Ollie, I should say, this morning, is returning to the the concept of power rankings, but what we want to do is is rank Liverpool's five most important players for this season to come. So, who is the most important player for Liverpool for the rest of the campaign, um, and what five of them are they? So, what I have decided is that the guys are going to basically um, present their five to me, and I will act as judge, jury, and executioner. Um, on five to one. Now, five to one is in order of sort of least most important to most most important, if you like. And I think that it's only fair that I then get to rule the roost. And if I want to overrule them with someone completely different, I will because I'm the content editor. And that is the perks of the job, even though there aren't many. Um, so we'll start at number five. Mark, give me your fifth most important player of Liverpool's season for the rest of it? Well, um, judging by, we've obviously talked um, outside this podcast very briefly about our options and um, I think Ollie's are a bit more you know, straightforward than what I've gone for. I've tried to go for players that a bit more outside the box, but I mean, number five, you might think is not outside the box as much, but I've gone for Trent Alexander-Arnold because, you know, the last couple of years, he has been one... The, arguably one of the main sources of assists for Liverpool, or the most important form of assists this season, uh, last few seasons. This season he's not been at it very much. Um, there's several reasons for that. You could not go into it too much because we'll be here all day. But, you know, 
if Liverpool are going to get back, get into the top four, which is the main priority this season, they've got to try and get him back to his best. In the last few weeks, there have been signs. Certainly, Sheffield United had a very good game. Um, and then several other games as well. He's been close to his best, but still not quite there just yet. But yeah, for me, they've got to try and get certainly a lot more having whether it's game more goals. Obviously, he got the goal against Tottenham, but you no, know, his free kicks haven't been quite there this season as what they have been used to. But in terms of his assist output, you know, him and uh, Andy Robertson aren't quite there either. But certainly from an attacking point of view, which has been the main source of problems the last few weeks and months, you know, they've got to get Trent back into the game. Do you think that there's? Do you think there originally was a plan to evolve with Trent? Do you think that there was sort of Trent's next stage was set and it's already sort of had to be put back to 2021-22 in the sense that, you know, I think everyone has parked the midfield discussion for now. But part of the reason why they've done that is because he was essentially Liverpool's ultimate playmaker maker from a sort of central to right position anyway. We talked about this last week on the show with with how they use Thiago and where they use Trent in a conventional sense, in a in an ideal world when Liverpool were still getting or on course to get a 90-point season. The idea that a, a breakdown in play and, a, and a, a sort of turnover in play would lead to Trent one side, Thiago the other, with, uh, you'd imagine, around 20 yards of space inside the opposition box while you've still got numbers forward. The opposition uh, uh, half, I should say, while you've still got numbers forward. Is a, is a really dangerous position. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, do we have to just wait until next season to see sort of Trem 4.0, I guess? Yeah, I mean, obviously I completely get the Trent in midfield discussion. He's been liking Stephen Jarrah with his passing range. You know, some of the balls he can play is absolutely out of this world. But for me, certainly the last year, year and a half or so, he's been a lot more defensively solid, I think, you know. That's always a criticism you get. You see it on Twitter all the time, you know. Yeah, but can he defend? Can he do this? Can he do that? Gets compared to Aaron Rambasaka, Reese James, who are very good right backs as well. But you know, defensively, you know, he has been much more solid this year, I think. You now his positioning has been much better, whether that's because he's been dropping ten yards deeper because there's not no Van Dyke or Gomez back there. Um they're, they're the tactical reasons why, but you know, his tackling seems to become a lot better. You know, his defensive now is just so much wiser. It's, it's just becoming a much more complete all-round right-back, which is obviously what he is, what makes him the best in the world in his position. Um, whether we'll see him move into midfield next year, year before, near after, who knows. But for now, I'm, I'm more than happy to see him at right-back because that's the position that he has made his own. He's defined it as, you know, that, that's the way the right-back has to play now. That's He's defined like most players across the world now. See him as the benchmark, benchmark and, you know, I'm certainly comfortable with him staying there, certainly for the time being. Why not for the future? Well, what's interesting about the discussion is last year, I, I think he almost gets put into the wrong category anyway, as is we, we had the long piece recently about positionless football and the fact that we keep giving these guys numbers and positions. Mm. He, he was a right back, but he played in the inside right channel. I wrote a long piece about him and I, I called it the pocket. He sets up in the inside right pocket and he tries to bend an arc crosses. That's what he likes to do. And he was always closest to David Beckham than he was Kafu or any other right back that would road forward. What they changed against Sheffield United when he played essentially an inverted wing-back role and everyone was saying, oh, it's similar to Jao Cancelo. He's always been there in that space because he was always asked to cut off transitions to try and head it off before he would even have to bother. 
being yeah. at the back. What they did this time was say, do you want to carry the ball a bit more? Do you want to maybe play some inter- interplay passing and, and then play through the middle? Because usually if you think about it, he would either slide the ball off and then move out towards the wing to give some width, or he would set up in that pocket and immediately try and get the ball in. And that's where you get the 45-50 cross numbers that were just impossible to sustain. He wanted to play his style of game and it didn't work with the way the forward line was playing anymore or the way defences were set up against them. So now this is the evolution, I think, where they would probably prefer him to keep that first role for at least another three or four years whilst the legs are there. And then maybe you just naturally gravitate into being more of a midfielder as you age a little bit. But the, the little evolution now is, will he carry the ball more? Can he be more of an on-the-move playmaker? And then do you have the guys behind, if we don't have Jordan Henderson, to cover that? And that's a big ask of Wijnaldum and Thiago to say, you must sit there the whole game. And it's, do you want the trade-off of who is going to be your on-the-move creator? Is it Trent in the final third and he's going to get all the way back to right back? Or are you going to allow Thiago or Wijnaldum want them to move? And initially they let Wijnaldum and Thiago have that role. And against Sheffield United, they said, you guys sit, Trent's going to go. And I thought it worked just so much better. It brought so much more natural depth to, to the attacking play. And he seemed happier. He seemed free. Yeah, he did. He did, indeed. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Okay, Ollie, give me your number five. Uh, I've got Fabinho. Um, you could put him, I think, one. You could put him five. You could leave him off the list, I guess. Um, I think that, to me, the interesting thing is more the question of where he plays. I know Mark's written about that this week. Of Do you just decide, you know what, let's sit him as the screener in midfield and we'll cobble together a centre-back partnership from, from real centre-backs? Or are we just treating him moving forward as a centre-back? Um, I think that's a fascinating discussion the rest of the way. And could you maybe do some of the Thomas Tuchel where you say, well, let's just stream it week to week. Let's decide as and when, based on the opposition, where we think we need our best ball stopper in the team. I've, I've got to be honest. I don't know how it's even a, a, a conversation, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it's a discussion. He is number one centre-back at the club for the rest of the season. And if he's not, there should be serious questions asked. This, I don't think it's... I don't think it's feasible. I don't think it's feasible at all to ask Ozan Kabak and anyone else to, to play centre-half for Liverpool. Nat Phillips is 24, but he's at most, probably a top-level championship player. If we're being honest, Ben Davis clearly needs time to get used to what they want him to get used to. And, you know, I think the intricacies of what we ask players to do in this system, we've spoken for years about how hard and how sort of chess-like this system is. You don't just have to play a position, you have to anticipate three moves before they happen. And... I think to to have a 20-year-old kid there who might not even have a future at Liverpool, he's on loan. I think he needs he needs his hand holding as much as possible. And I think that's why we haven't seen, apart from when it's been necessary, for instance, we didn't see Kabak and, and Phillips in the derby. Um, and I think that's the reason why I think there's a part of me that thinks that by having it the hand forced against Sheffield United, they actually came up with something more creative to be honest, and more more um, screening and more protective for the centre-backs in the long run in by which they were able to just keep the, th- the foot on the throat and they were able to stop Sheffield United from getting out at all, um, from letting them do McBurney things and from, from causing problems in that way. But I, I struggle, Ollie, and I, I that's where I think potentially I think he could be higher in the list of priorities because I think you have to keep him fit and I think there's no doubt he plays centre-back for the rest of the season. Yeah, I think the only, the only counter would be 
how comfortable are you with Genie Wijnaldum in that sixth role? And are you, it, it's whether they say we are playing, basically they played a double pivot the other night, right? There was the two of them screening in front. Uh, is that just the, the mode moving forward? Is there still going to be a one in there? And if it's a one, do you trust Genie Wijnaldum? Because Wijnaldum has been excellent in that role in spurts, particularly against West Ham, and then pretty dreadful at overplaying the ball in other ones. And I guess the, the conversation you have as a staff is, is the drop-off from Fabinho to Wijnaldum great and the drop-off from Fabinho to, you know, Phillips, Kabak? And does moving Fabinho with that drop-off into the screening role help cover that somewhat? I guess that would be your week-to-week -week role. And then whether it would just look like a back three anyway, if he's in that 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 role in front, if he just drops in, is it just a back three anyway in certain weeks? I think the devil's advocate is, what, put yourself in their shoes when they're sort of playing the odds constantly. You imagine, so you play a hypothetical here. Imagine he got injured playing in the screening role, in the midfield role, and was reeled off for the season. I think that's a lot harder to take than if he gets injured, if he gets injured playing centre back. Because I think they would think, okay, it could have happened anyway. But, you know, if he gets an impact injury off a bad tackle, a la Napoli at home, because he's in that midfield area, they would think, they would think, what are we doing putting him in there? Why, why didn't we just sort of make him number one centre half. I think it's difficult. I, th I get the I get the screening argument, but for me, I think there's no doubt. Put it this way, in my opinion, if he went down for the rest of the season, then I think there's every chance that Gini Wijnaldum ends up playing centre half. Mm -hmm. Which, if you can get Naby Keita back, probably would, would happen, or Henderson. Um, or Obviously, Henderson is the centre back, but if Henderson's out, if Fabinho's out and you get Kaita back, I think you end up with Wijnaldum and, and Kabach if he's fit. So, I, yeah, that, that's where I am with that. Um, number fours, Oli, I'll come to you again. Give you a thought. Yeah, just Alisson for me. Um, obviously, we don't know where it states at the moment how like, likely and liable he's to play the rest of the season. That's obviously out there. Um, and I must confess, I think on this podcast, it must be a month ago now, I did state that he was now streaks ahead of every other goalkeeper in the world and had actually gone beyond our black into his own stratosphere. And since then, he, he fell into a hole and he's been just worrying. That's what we'll say. Yeah. Um Given the defensive issues, you need him to play at a level that is even beyond his own excellence, as we've discussed before, becoming a guy who, who is not just a shot stopper, but stops really good chances. So he becomes an elite, elite level goalkeeper. The only way you're going to win games consistently the rest of this way with the way the forward line's been playing and the way the defence has been playing is feeling comfortable when you score two goals. And that yeah. requires him being at an elite level. Okay, Mark, number four. Um, well, I've gone for Naby Keita, um, just uh, again another outside the box um, option. I think. You Look know, forward to the YouTube comment <laughs> here, <please. laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the minute or the game he went down, which was I think the last game prior to his injury, the last game he played was the Crystal Palace seven 0 in December. I don't think it's any bit of a coincidence that from that game Liverpool struggled in an attacking, creative sense. Um, no, I mean, we go back to like the start of the season. I think he had a run of like five or six games in a row. Like there's the Arsenal game at home, there's the Chelsea game in there where, you know, the create creatively at least, you know, Liverpool were streets ahead of pretty much every team in the league at that point. And, you know, obviously a lot's happened between now and then. But, you know, if Liverpool want to try and you know, get into that top four, they've got to, you know, outsmart opposite defences, which has not been something they've been able to do the last few weeks. You know, it's been too easy to play against Liverpool, especially at Anfield. You know, it's just, like you say, sit sit deep, 
do the low block counter attack. That's literally what opposition teams have been doing the last few few weeks, bar in Manchester City, um, who just are streets ahead of everybody at the moment. Um, if you have Cater in there, you know that frees up some. You know, like you can have Juan Adam and Thiago in there to you know do the hard wars, do the tackling, to screen the defense, keep uh, protect likes of Phillips, Kabak, whoever it is back there, or or Fabinho, obviously if he comes back into that position, and you know then that allows. You know, you could see it against Sheffield United. He was only on the pitch, what, 10, 15 minutes. You could see some of the passes he was making. He was making runs forward. He has that little little sprint that he does just to get away from opposition defenders. All of a sudden, he's away. There's no other midfielder. I mean, Alex Lossley-Chamberlain can do it, but he's not been selected for one reason over the last few weeks uh, for whatever reason. But, you know, Cater is the one player in midfield anyway that can add that spark. You can set the front three away. And if they are going to score more goals, beat these teams that are, Proven to be, you know, their Achilles heel at home. You know, they need him fit. They need him back at his best. Do you think he plays against Chelsea, Mark? If he's fit, I'd start him. But it's again, who do you leave out? You know, against Sheffield United, you can't stop. You can't drop Curtis Jones. It's honestly, he's on one of the first choice midfielders at the moment. And then you're left with um, Thiago and Wijnaldum. You know, what what do you do? No, it's a very very tricky one. You know, the sport for options in midfield if they're all fit, but. Now, I don't think he'll start him. I'd like to see him start from a personal point of view, but I don't think he will. All right. Give us uh, number three. Mark. I've gone for Diogo Jota. Um, you know, personally, he's one of my favourite players right now. I was loving to bits. You know, start ever since the minute he came to this club. You know, you can just see he just gets it. You know, there's not many players who come into this Liverpool team and just start almost perfectly right from the off. You know, even look at some of the best ones, you know, Robertson, um, you no, know, he took a while to get in. Fabinho took a while to settle. You know, there's a couple of the exceptions there, you know, Salah, Mane, um, but Jota basically coming to a title winning team, a Champions League winning team, and just looked right at home. And you know, since he's gone down injured in December, a bit like Navigator, the goals have dried up and it's not so much the quality that you miss, it's the variety of options, you know. Klopp's been forced to basically play Mane, Salah and Firmino pretty much every game. And if he hasn't, he's dropped Shakiri in there and that's not worked a lot time. Kuhn and Mino didn't get a game much until he went out on loan. So it just adds that something different. And like I said, he was on course for basically getting 20, 25 goals this season prior to his injury. No, he's one of the best attackers in the league at that point when he went down. So they need to get him back. Whether he get, comes in against Chelsea, obviously, I think from what Klopp said in his press conference, though, they're still assessing him to see if he's okay. He's not had much training the last couple of days, but. You know, if they can get him back into the team, back into the squad, you know, it's a massive boost. Okay, Ollie, number three. I've gone with Thiago Alcantara, um, not only for his delightful social media antics, which are a mood boost uh, during these troublesome times. Meme gold. <laughs> no. I, the, you know, I'm a confessed Thiago-aholic every time I'm on this show. It's a 20-minute spiel about Thiago's excellence with and without the ball. To me, this is a leadership thing, even more so than it is his excellence with the ball, um, which we don't have to get into that ludicrous debate if every hurts or helps this team. The guy ran the show in the Champions League final eight months ago. I think he's okay. Um, you go back to that first goal I told you guys about this earlier this morning. I went back and rewatched the, the game um, yesterday and you rewatch the celebration for the first goal and he screams at Ozan Kabak to get involved in the celebration, to be a part of the team. This guy is maniacal. 
He wants to win away at Sheffield United the same way he wanted to win in that Champions League final. It matters that much to him. That this idea that he came as like this prima donna, slippy, assy guy was never the player. People outed themselves as who never watched him in the Bundesliga. He likes to fight. He likes to be in the battle. That's why he was playing in the German league and not swanning around, you know, sitting in a, in a, in a double pivot for Juventus, spraying passes all over the place. He wants to be in that tussle and fight. And I think those leadership skills... Once Jordan Henderson's gone down and now he's kind of grown into the club and taken stock of the thing, the fact that it's bottomed out has made it a little bit easier for him. He can now kind of assume this mantle of not feeling like he's separate from the team and coming into this title-winning team and it's like, what, what is my place? Now he just is a part of the team and they're all dragging themselves out of it together. So I think him the rest of the way with that reputation, with that quality and needing those leadership skills in the middle of the pitch, he's going to be, just be so instrumental. I love it. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Let's roll on to number two. Ollie, give me your number two. I got with Sadio Mane. I think the biggest drop off in the forward line this year, just in terms of production, you can go through everyone else, as I have basically done this week throughout the side. We did a Firmino one, I did a Mane one, I, I, we had a Salah one look this morning. And you go and find their underlying numbers, and you see Roberto Firmino is basically as bad at what he does as he has been the whole time. And um, as Liverpool fans and Liverpool, the team have come to accept, he probably plays three goals below his expected output. That's just who he is. And we've come to learn and live with it. And you understand his movement, all the stuff we all know, you, you just deal with it. Sadio Mane is playing at the similar level. And Liverpool right now have the two worst finishes in the Premier League. And you can have one, you cannot have two. And the second one cannot be the guy who last season was the most common player in the Premier League to take you from a point to three points. He was the MVP in that respect, that he scored more match-winning goals and more point-winning uh, goals than any other player in the Premier League. And that has been such a big drop of this year. And I think it's gone a little bit under the radar as, as everything else has bubbled to the surface, the, the centre-back situation, uh, the injury crisis, VAR, everything else. Firmino has taken a ton of the blame what's gone wrong this season and what has gone a little under the radar there that even with the same opportunity even with the same average distance of shot and every nerdy metric you want to go to Sadio Mane does not hit the target as consistently and he's not scoring as consistently and so for them to get back into a top four race and to finish in the top four they need Sadio Mane not even to be traditional Sadio Mane just do what the expected output is and that is more than enough and far more than they've had so far this year. It's the first time to me that he's looked like it's sort of taken a toll on him in the sense that I think one thing that hasn't been said, written, discussed is how much he is taking for the team. Like he is getting booted, he's getting triple marked, he's he's not getting a chance to get his head up at times and he's constantly asking still for the ball. He's constantly showing, he's constantly saying, give me the ball and I'll try and make something happen. And I, I wonder whether there's a bit of man, man management to do there with him and sort of, and maybe maybe this is the plan with the sort of Sheffield United tactic, if you like, if, if it continues as to, this is something which can get Sadio a bit more freedom, a bit more movement, a bit, in, a bit of way in which he can sort of score that. You think about what, what, a, what a, a typical Mane goal has become at Liverpool. It's that sort of Southampton away last season, Newcastle at home, just open up and around 16 yards out on his right foot and it's almost like it's a it's almost like it's a an XG of a goal. An XG mm -hmm. of like nine point nine point nine percent. You know, it's it's as close as you're gonna get, but he makes them look that easy and that's why. And I think teams have got wise to that and I think teams have got wise to allowing that space. And it's up to Liverpool now, I think, because he's done so much for the team and he continues to do so much for the team that for the first time I think there's a there's a need of it always feels like it's salad off me, you know, doesn't it? Or they need mm -hmm. a goal. 
You know, they need a goal. They need this little confidence booster of a goal. I think for the first time, you're starting to see that with Mane. He's also the first one for me where when there was the talk of burnout earlier in the year, everyone immediately went to Trent. Trent looks exhausted. Trent looks burnt out. And I wrote that piece recently about the naivety of the footballers under Jurgen Klopp. And it was a quote that came from Matt Thomas that he felt Jurgen Klopp needed naive footballers that he could mould in this one specific way. And as they got older and as they found their voice and they, they became winners in other things, those lads went off and won a World Cup. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't quite the same. That that thing where you've got to go and press and the you know, Linders is shouting out, you press, press, press. You don't really want to do those five yards because you did those five yards two years ago and you're really tired. When I was writing that, the first person that came to mind was Mane, because I do think there's been that slight dip of real burning intensity and urgency and completely understandable. The guy who's played football nonstop, international as well as domestic football for, what is it now, three straight calendar years, probably four or five, right? Mm. It's been an unbelievable toll on him, and I think you can really see it in him that there's that definite flinch of And it's not that they don't go and do it. No one wants to say they don't do this stuff. It's the hesitation. It's the, you know, I'll take an extra second, an extra beat to go and press it. Their pressing numbers are way down. And he was so much the, the conduit for their high press of leaping out at a terrifying pace. That was always the thing. It wasn't just the press came high. It was that it came terrifyingly fast and they could do it for 80 minutes and you could only last 40 and, and that's where they really need to... And if it's a case of, as Mark mentioned, Jota, really, if it's a case of getting Jota back in for a fortnight just to give him a breather, maybe that's maybe that's what it takes. Okay. Uh, Mark, number two, please. I get the feeling my choice is going to cause much of a stir, but I'm, I've gone for Ozan. <laughs> I've gone for Ozan Kabak. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm thinking big picture with this one, mainly because, you know, he, I've wrote a piece on the site. He has got basically a three-month audition for it to basically be a Liverpool player. And, you know, from a Liverpool point of view, you know, they've got to look past Van Dijk and go and Matip at some stage. You know, whether the next season is Matip's last season, it definitely won't be Van Dijk's, but they've got to look past, you know, what, who's going to be, you know, the next big centre-back at the club. And, you know, what pressure brings out the best in players. That's the, the best players get, thrive under pressure. And there's no doubt that he is at this moment. He's 20 years of age. This is going to be the hardest challenge arguably is going to face in his professional career and you know if he can get through it you no know, no the signs are like you say he's been a bit inconsistent but you know, that's he's 20 years old and he's playing at center back in all of the toughest situation you can ever really get so we've got to get got caught in some slack and he's only just been at the club for a month as well we've got to remember as well so you know and if you factor in the importance of this season you know, he is we can't understand how important it is to have a recognized center back playing at center back you yeah. know it's absolutely it's absolutely vital you know as good as Henderson has been, as good as Fabinho is, they aren't centre-backs. You know, Fabinho has played almost as good as, but you can just see a couple of times, you know, he just does things where it's a tackle that, you know, he shouldn't do. Like, he can get away with midfield, but he can't do it as centre-back. And, you know, Kavak, like you say, he's not been perfect by any stretch, but there are signs there. You know, he can pass the ball, he's comfortable on it. His heading's quite good as well, considering he's not obviously the tallest of defenders, but, you know, he's got... It's, it's, they paid what one and a half million for a loan, you know, and then potentially they've got to pay eighty million pounds or something. You know, they're not going to spend that lightly. You know, given the current financial climate, especially on a player that if they think may or may not make it, if they're going to spend that money, they're going to spend it on a player they know full well is going to be the answer to whatever issues they've got uh, coming next season. You'd hope that Van Dijk and Gomez are fit, so they've got to think whatever centre back they do or do not get in, they've got to be. If one of them goes down again, they've got to be able to step in and say, right, Virgil's not there, go in and fill the void for a week or two, whatever it is. If Kabak can be that player, which the next three months, it's going to be tough for the club as well because 
it's not easy to assess a player in such a short space of time, especially given you know, the, the crazy hectic season that we're suffering right now. You know, it's not easy to assess a player like a mistake at this time. It's not a it's not say it's not a normal season. Um so it's gonna to be tough for the club to assess him in such a short space of time. But if he can get through it, who knows he might be a Liverpool player in the long run. There's, the sign's good, but like I say, it's just a start right now. Okay. Number one, please. Mo Salah is my number one. I guess he's um, yours too, Ali. No. Mo Salah is mine too, yeah. Let's open the floor on Mo Salah. Go on. Uh, yeah, to me, I mean, you know, amid all the you know, the problems that Liverpool supposedly had in front of goal, you know, creativity, not scoring many goals. No, he scored what 24, 25 goals in all competitions this season. No, that's crazy, crazy numbers for you know for any player, let alone one who has been doing it for consistently year in, year out, since he's been at Liverpool. He's got what, 119 goals, 118 goals in all competitions for since since arriving at Liverpool. He is a living legend right now. Um and whilst, you know, like we've talked Mane's not been at it in terms of front of goal, Firmino hasn't been at it, but the one constant has been Salah. Um and I think if they are going to achieve, you know, we're not expected to win the Champions League by any stretch, but if they are going to go deep in that competition and if they're going to compete for a top four spot, he has to be continue banging in the goals. It's as simple as that. Go on, Ali. Yeah, that I mean that's just it. it. He is he is by far to me the most important player the rest of the way. You win games, Dan, you might not know this by scoring goals. We can we can do all the nerdy tactical analysis, but you gotta put the ball in the net. And he has the fifth fattest mark in the league this year of guys above their expected goals. So he's scoring all the goals that are expected and then adding the ones that are unexpected to. And there's no one else in Liverpool even close to that stratosphere of outperforming what is expected of them. His average shot distance has gone up and up and up as the team gets worse and worse and worse, and he keeps scoring goals. It's just the guy cannot stop scoring goals. And uh, expecting to continue to deliver that is a massive ask. And yet, do you have any doubt that he's going to end the season with the golden boot? I have zero doubt in my mind. I, if anything, it, it should open up for him a little bit if they can round into some kind of form. So to have a guy that you can just say, no matter what, is going to end the season with the golden boot, which I think is 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 just that that is that will likely be the difference between them finishing the top four or not. Do you think that there's perhaps an element that he's so we think of strikers and Liverpool goal scorers as as heroes, as as men of the hour, as people who do all the Roy of the Rover stuff. And there's always this chat about Salah, whether he's underappreciated or undervalued. And do, do you wonder, is it because he doesn't sort of, he doesn't, I mean, it's a ludicrous statement, but because he does, but he doesn't obviously win games on his own. Mm-hmm. And this team is so built about the team. It's so built about, it's all of them, that we don't get to see him be this Suarez, Torres incumbent that almost Liverpool fans have become used to from someone winning a golden boot, for example. Do you think he suffers a little bit from that? Yeah, he's a victim of the team being so good in his time. If the team stunk and he was this good, which he would be, um, he would be another hero. It'd be Suarez all over again, but he yeah, wouldn't if it was, have if it, great. Yeah, know? if it was him and Gerard in like 2008, yeah. you'd be saying like these two guys are just holding us up by their coattails here. It's really interesting. I had that piece this morning on his shot locations this season and where his goals have come from. And it's fascinating because in, in over the last couple of years, <clears> he's been the world's best finishing forward. 
and he essentially finishes unbelievable team moves. And you go through all the great Klopp goals and they get 10,000 retweets and who's at the end of them nodding at the, at the back post? It's Mamad Salah. And it's an amazing sweeping team move and Salah just the guy who puts in the net. This year, he's far more individualistic. Any idea that he was selfish before was daft. He was scoring a ton of goals. He had a ton of assists. It's like, what do you want him to do? He puts the ball on the net more than anyone else. Great. Be selfish then. And he yeah. wasn't anyway. But this season, he's selfish in so much as all of his goals are coming in the same locations for the most part, except for the screamers. It's in his little Salah corridor, him fashioning it for himself, or the, the quick reaction stuff we've spoken about this season where it just lands, he hits it and it goes in. So he's, he's had to develop more of an individual style this year, and yet it still doesn't seem like that kind of talismanic aura has surrounded him at all. It's still, And I think a lot of it is just Klopp is the talisman. So for this team, it's, it's about the, the collective. It's about Klopp. And he's just kind of, you know, fortunate the era he's come through, fortunate for himself, ton of trophies. Um, but in terms of that kind of aura and, and being up there with Dag Leash, um, Gerard, and being kind of like, will there be a stand named after him? Will he get the statue first? It's going to be the Jurgen Klopp stand. It's going to be the Jurgen Klopp statue. That's just, that's just the, the times we're in. Okay, I'll quickly... Uh, sum up where where we have the standings, the final placings, and what I've judged to be uh, the correct top five players, most important for the rest of Liverpool's season. Um, number five, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you, Mark, on Kabak. In that, I'd say that a centre back just doing centre back things for Liverpool is massively important for the next three months. And if he can just nail those basics, not get himself into any deep trouble and get a bit of consistency around partners and performances and stuff, then I think, you know, he'll, he'll well be worth the loan for you, put it that way, even if he doesn't stay beyond the season. If he can get Liverpool to to that top four, you know, holy grail, then I, then I think that him just doing seven out of ten stuff week in, week out at centre-half is, is going to be massive. Um, Oli, I'm going to put Fabinho in a four. For all the reasons we mentioned, I think he will be Liverpool's number one centre-back for the season, but also he will be able to to screen games and, and to also use his nous, um to impact the position ahead of him, which we've seen even if he's not playing there. So he's massively important. And he's, I think he's really important in the context of he isn't someone who has naturally stayed fit. Uh, and I think it's now time for Liverpool to try and get him on the pitch, get him through, you know, not to not to go too much into sort of abusing players' bodies, but back to the old 90s days of just strap up, get an injection if you have to before the game. We need you to pull through here for a couple of months. This is just how it is kind of thing. Um, third, Thiago. Uh, I think he's he is massively important no matter what. And I think sort of Thiago becoming Thiago is a huge contextualised part of the rest of the season. Yeah, it's about the team. Yeah, it's about getting top four. Yeah, it's about doing as much as we can in the Champions League. But almost Thiago finding his home from now until May will really, I think, lay the foundations for next season with what they can do when they've got everyone fit. Uh, Sadio Mane, number two, for all the reasons we mentioned, hugely important, hugely um, underplayed in terms of his impact on the attacking uh, dynamics of the team and yes Mohamed Salah is Liverpool's most important player from now until the end of the season that has been Liverpool's.com podcast Liverpool.com's podcast this week sorry hope you've enjoyed it uh, check out the website we've got tons of features on there which are really good and um, are really insightful the guys have been working extremely hard on and uh, we will continue to build up to Chelsea tomorrow 
the weekend, so on and so forth and beyond. But yeah, do leave us some nice comments, especially to Mark after a couple of his choices there. Uh, well, now, <laughs> uh, yeah, be nice, everyone. Come on. Um, okay, uh, we'll leave it there. We'll see you all again next week. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Uh, up these reds. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.